and then going on to next September as well. And so they asked me to preach on it, and it's a beautiful way uh, to start the new year because it really gives us just a beautiful picture of how we should seek to live our lives uh, to God's glory and to the praise of his name. Let's read Psalm 145 together. A song of praise of David. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness, and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you And you give them their food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him and also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. So far, our text. Brothers and sisters, how would you feel if I came up here today and I started demanding that you praise me? Start demanding that you glorify my name Now you start writing songs about my great deeds, calling me wonderful and mighty and beautiful and just great. You'd probably be disgusted, first of all, right? And secondly, you'd laugh in my face. Who am I to deserve your praise? I really don't. And what do even parents already start telling their children when they're very young? It's don't demand other people say nice things about you, but just wait for compliments. Don't ask for them. Don't ask for praise. This kind of behavior where people try and demand praise is so wrong uh, that there's actually a name, there's a diagnosis for it. It's called narcissism, isn't it? When someone feels that they're entitled, that they deserve everyone to praise them and glorify them. And it's interesting to know that C.S. Lewis, the really famous uh, Christian author, uh, before he converted to Christianity, when he was uh, an ardent atheist, 
uh, an opponent of Christians and Christianity. Uh, one of his biggest objections to Christianity was narcissism. Not his narcissism, but what he perceived to be God's narcissism. Because in the Bible, we meet a God who loves to be worshipped and praised. In fact, our God even commands people to worship and praise him, doesn't he? And so C.S. Lewis, when he was an atheist, he hated that about God. More than that, he also hated that about Christians. Because who's worse than politicians or celebrities or someone who is narcissistic and demanding that people praise them? Well, C.S. Lewis thought it was the people who actually did praise them, who followed them around and groveled at their feet. And so uh, Lewis was just disgusted by God and by Christians uh, before he became a Christian himself. But of course, as many of you know later, C.S. Lewis had a dramatic change of heart, didn't he? You can see in his books, if you've ever read any of them, how he turned into a man who just loved praising God. He loved talking about God and just gushing about God's grace uh, and God's goodness to anyone who would listen. What C.S. Lewis came to realize is that our lives are just full of praise. We're just praising people by nature. It's what we're drawn to do. We're drawn to praise great things and great people, and it's just natural and good especially that we'd want to praise our great and awesome God. And C.S. Lewis explains it like this. He wants us to think about it this way, because this is what helped him. Think about the last time you watched a really great movie, or you read a, a really great book, or you heard a really great song. Or maybe think about the last time you saw just an incredible view, or a wonderful sunset, or you went on a really beautiful vacation and took lots of pictures that just didn't do the place justice. What did you want to do after reading that book? What did you want to do after seeing that sunset? You probably wanted to talk about it. You wanted to tell someone. You wanted to share your joy and your excitement. You wanted to show the pictures and say, you can't even begin to imagine what it was like. You just long for others to catch a little glimpse of the beauty and the wonder that you saw. And this doesn't feel like a burden to you or a chore or anything like that. But instead, as Lewis came to realize, your enjoyment actually grows as you get to share what you just experienced. Isn't that true? Especially if you're sharing about a book or a song and then you find out the other person, they also have read that book. They also love that song. They've also been to that place. And then just together, you can just praise what you saw. Together, you can just share in each other's joy. And if you don't have someone to share it with, C.S. Lewis came to realize, your joy is not actually complete. It's stunted. It's not quite as great, as full as it could be. And so C.S. Lewis explains, our God's clearly not a narcissist at all. Because our God doesn't need our praise. I actually really love how C.S. Lewis said it. Our God doesn't need our praise. Because that would be like if C.S. Lewis demanded that his dog start barking his approval at his books. Does C.S. Lewis need that? No. Uh, the truth is our God delights in us. And God invites us and calls us to delight in him as we were created to do. This is our ultimate purpose. This is our greatest joy. 
And C.S. Lewis came to understand this, and what we see in our text today is that King David clearly understood this too. That's why David writes this psalm, this psalm of praise. In fact, in Hebrew, the book of Psalms, the name of the whole book is Praises. But there's only one psalm in the whole book that bears that title, a psalm of praise. And that's this psalm. This is the height of praise in the book of Praises. And this is a psalm of David. Actually, it's David's final psalm. If you know the book of Psalms, you know that there are a lot of different psalms in this book, many written by David. And you know that David had quite the life. He had some great triumphs where he celebrated God's deliverance and salvation and help. But also many psalms before this in this book where David is in some very deep and dark valleys. He had some very deep lows. He lived a life that included adultery and murder and assault. He had major sins in his own life that caused great pain for his own family and for his people. And the Psalms of David before this, they express the highest highs and the lowest lows. But then here in Psalm 145, we get the final Psalm of David. We get David's last word in the whole Bible. And as we see in this passage, this is David's final assessment. It's the thing that he wants to pass on to his kids and grandkids and then to us today as well. And David's final call for himself and for all of us is to praise the Lord. We'll see that in three parts. We'll see that specifically David calls us to praise God. Because first of all, our God is great. Secondly, our God is good. And thirdly, our God is kind. So first of all, David emphasizes that our God is great. And so what David's doing in this last psalm, his last chance to get his point across to his readers, uh, to all those like us who will one day read and sing this psalm, David begins with a promise. He begins with a, a declaration of intent for this upcoming day, this upcoming week and year, and the rest of his life. He, he promises, I will extol you, my God and King. That is, I'll lift you up, my God and King, and bless your name forever. David says that every day, forever and ever, he says, I will bless your name and lift you up, O oh my God and King. What a way to start his final psalm after all that came before. David says, in a sense, that this is what everything leads up to. This is what our life is all about today and every day after this. Every day the Lord gives us. Uh, we're invited to join with David in all of his days, praising. That's what David is devoting the rest of his life to. What he wants us to devote all the rest of our life to, to, to praise of God. And what reason does David give? It's because all the rest of the psalm, it's because of who God is, who he shows himself to be. Our God, we should praise him every day. Because throughout his word, throughout our lives, God shows himself to be praiseworthy. And so first of all, we look at verse 3 and we see the first attribute of God that David mentions. He says, great is the Lord. God is great. And since God is great, David says, our praise should be great. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Uh, our praise at church today, at home tomorrow and throughout this year, it should correspond to who God is. 
Uh, our praise should be great because our God is great. And so how great is our God and how great should our praise strive to be? And we can see the description of our God uh, and David's God here. Starting in verse 3, his greatness is unsearchable. Unsearchable, incomprehensible. We can't even begin to wrap our minds around it. Verse 4, his acts are mighty. Verse 5, his splendor and majesty are glorious. His works are are wondrous. His deeds are awesome. And we can't think of the word awesome as the way I usually use awesome. I use it very badly. I know there are some families who like to reserve the word awesome and set it apart for God alone. And that's beautiful. I don't do that. Maybe I should. But the truth is, French fries are not awesome. Your Christmas vacation was not awesome. I hope it was good. But only our God is truly awesome, awe-inspiring. When we think of how awesome our God is, as we're about to reflect on, it should give you goosebumps. It should send chills down your spine because our God is truly awesome. That's what David emphasizes here, God's greatness. As David emphasizes, we can see this mainly in God's acts and his works and his deeds. So when we think of God's acts and works and deeds, I think our minds automatically go to creation. That's a good place to start. Uh, we can see God's wondrous works there. Just think for a second of the mountains all around us. Think of beautiful sunsets. Think of the stars and the planets, billions of them, that God himself has flung into space. Think of tiny little butterflies and ants. Think of human beings like us, made in God's likeness and knit together in their mother's wombs. Our God is truly an awesome creator. And so God, David also saw God's power in creation, but he also sees it in God's acts in history. We read about one of them in Exodus. He could see God's power displayed in the Exodus, and so, do, uh, so can we. You can think about how God, to deliver his people, he sent great plagues, controlling even little things like locusts, but also great things like the sun casting darkness. You can think of how the Lord heaped up millions of pounds of water, made them stand up in a heap so his people could walk through a sea on dry ground. You can see God's greatness on Mount Sinai after the Exodus where a mountain was in darkness and a mountain was shaking and the people were terrified. But more than that, though, David can see God's greatness, not just in the works recorded in the Bible, not just in creation, but David could see it in his own life. David could see God's power guiding uh, all that he did each day again. God, uh, David could see God's mighty power, his, uh, his greatness, and the fact that he guided that one little smooth stone that David first flung in faith. He guided it right to Goliath, taking down a giant. David could see God's greatness in building up a huge nation, even using a weak, frail king like him, purely out of God's own grace. And so David's conclusion, looking back on his life, looking back on the word, looking back on creation, is this. Brothers and sisters, our God is great. 
And how must we respond? Well, David says it's by great overflowing praise. And it makes sense that David would feel this way, that he needs to praise greatly. Because David saw some really great things. No wonder he marveled at God's greatness. But in a way, we need to realize, you need to realize, and I need to realize, that as much as David praises God in this psalm for his greatness, we have actually seen far more of God's greatness than David ever got to. We should marvel and praise more than David does, shouldn't we? Because David had seen some of God's glorious acts and works and deeds, but we've seen far greater ones. First of all, we know a lot more about the world than David did. You ever think about that? He had a very limited knowledge overall uh, of this great world that we can see pictures of documentaries about that we can go explore on an airplane, no problem. We know a lot more about the intricacies of the body, how many cells we're made of, what our cells are made of. We know a lot more about this expanse of the universe around us than David ever could have imagined. But not, more, not only that, so much more important. You know so much more about God's work of redemption than David got to. We have seen so much more of God's salvation plan than David did. He was, in a sense, just at the beginning. David saw some amazing works of salvation and heard some great things about God. But you and me, we have seen Jesus Christ. Think about how awesome that is. That should send chills down our spine. We heard about this last week. We celebrated Christmas. The coming to earth of God in the flesh. We have seen portrayed before us in the preaching Jesus' birth and his life and his death, his resurrection, his ascension into heaven, his work gathering the church ever since then, spreading the gospel to all corners of the earth and bringing countless people into his nation, a nation bigger than David possibly could have imagined. If David got goosebumps thinking about God's greatness, and I bet he did, what should we get thinking about our God's greatness in Jesus Christ and in the world today? And so, with the knowledge that he has, our David praises God, and he can't wait to tell others about his God. We read that he extols him, he lifts him up, and he blesses, he, he praises him. He says, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. According to his greatness, we should praise him. And so a question for us this morning as we gather together uh, in this wonderful place to praise our great God. Is our praise great? Is our praise great? In accordance with this God's greatness, how much he is worthy of our praise? Do we praise God greatly enough at church? Do our hearts just vibrate with awe and with joy at who this God is? Do we sing out of joy and admiration and adoration? Do we listen to God's word with awe and with wonder and sing with not just our lips but with our hearts? Do we begin 
in this worship service and our daily worship as well to sense God's greatness and our own littleness. Because often I think our praise can become quite traditional and ritualistic and quite lackluster. But David tells us here, our praise should be great because our God is great. That's what we should long for, great praise. But David moves on because our God is so much more than just great. If you think about it, a great God might be praiseworthy. But can a great God, this God who made the universe, that made all things, can this God be your God? Can this God be my God? Can he be the God of people like us who are decidedly not great? No offense. A little bit of offense for all of us. Can we somehow take comfort and confidence in this great God? Well, David tells us that in his life throughout the book of Psalms before this, in his greatest joys, also in his deepest, darkest sorrows, uh, a life where he learned himself he was not great, he was far from it. What David tells us that he has learned in this psalm is that our God is not only great, but he is also good. It's our second point. From verse 6 to 7, we can see uh, a bit of a transition here. David talks in verse 6 about speaking of God's greatness, of his might, and declaring God's greatness. Well, then in verse 7, the words change, change from speaking and declaring to pouring forth, to just bursting with praise for something, to singing aloud, not just declaring, but singing in his heart. So what makes God, uh, David pour forth and sing after just declaring and speaking? Well, it's the fame of God's abundant goodness and righteousness, he says. What causes David to pour forth and gush and sing aloud in praise to God is thinking about God's, not just his greatness, but his goodness. To make this point, David again brings us back to the time of Exodus that we thought about earlier, we read about earlier. Again, we can see how God's greatness is so evident in the Exodus We see God's power and his majesty in the plagues. We see his strength heaping up the waters to deliver his people. We see his justice on Mount Sinai as he gives his perfect law. And the mountain itself smokes and shakes and lightning and fire bursts forth. And finally, we can see God's holiness when God's people worship a golden calf and the Lord sends a plague on them. But David doesn't reference that. David references what we read together, what happens right after that. Moses goes up to God and intercedes for the people. He asks then, when God says he'll stay with his people, he asks to see God's glory. And God says he will show him his glory. And how did God say that? We read that together. How is God going to show his glory? What might you think? Maybe God would open up Moses' eyes so he could see the expanse of the universe. That would show God's glory, right? Maybe he would show heaven's armies all around him. That would show God's glory, right? No, God says something very different. God says he will show him his glory by making all his goodness pass before him. That's what we read. Note those words. I'll make all my goodness pass before you. Moses asks to see glory, and what he receives is God's goodness. And that might strike us as strange. Because surely glory more corresponds to greatness, we would think. 
But God here says something different. All his ultimate glory isn't shown just in his creation, but instead is found in his goodness. It's not just shown in how he created us, but God's ultimate glory is shown in how he interacts with sinful people like us. David quotes this in verse 8. The words that we read together in Exodus 34 when God is showing his glory in his goodness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The mountains and the sky and the oceans isn't where God's glory is revealed most clearly. It's in his nature and in his heart, especially his heart towards sinful people like you. And sinful people like me and sinful people like the Israelites who he saved from Egypt and right after they reject him. They reject his commands. That's how God shows his glory. He shows his character. It's in his forgiveness and his love and his mercy and his grace. God shows in that passage that he is truly good from his very core. He explains his nature to us, assuring us that's where we can see his glory. And assuring us he's still our God, even though so we are so weak, and he is so, so, so great. He assures us he is merciful, not holding our sins against his repentant people. And more than that, he's gracious, giving us far more than what we deserve. He's patient, slow to anger, he says. And he is abounding in love for you and me. And this is David's assessment after a long life a long life of ups and downs with God. This is David's ass- assessment. That God's words about himself, about his own heart, it's all true. God's right. What David is telling us is this is exactly who he has found God to be in his life. Our God is great and our God is good. And I think that C.S. Lewis has one of the best explanations of God's goodness in the Chronicles of Narnia. I wonder how many of you have read it. I just read it again. I'd recommend it. It's fantastic. Uh, in the Chronicles of Narnia, we meet Lucy and Edmund and Peter and Susan, and they come into a magical land of Narnia. They come to a land that's oppressed by a wicked ri- witch who represents Satan. But here in this land that's oppressed by the wicked witch, there's a magical animal named Mr. Beaver, creative name. And he's a talking beaver. And he tells uh, these children about a savior. Someone who can save the land from this monster. And this savior is a lion named Aslan, the hero of the book, who's a Christ-like figure. And the children hear that Aslan is a lion and they hear that they actually have to go and meet him. Uh, And what would you think if you were told You needed to go and meet with a lion. Sounds pretty intimidating, doesn't it? And so the children, naturally, they're scared. Of course they are. Lions are so great. They're so strong and so powerful. They could crush us. And so Susan asks, this lion, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. That's the truth about our God, isn't it? 
Our God, this holy God, this great God, he isn't safe. But he is good. And I once heard a child who heard this and was quite upset. She asked her parents why uh, he would ever say that Jesus isn't safe. And that's a good question, isn't it? We need to be clear. Jesus isn't safe for the wicked. He isn't safe for evil people. He isn't safe for the devil. All God's opponents will be crushed. All sin will be destroyed. Of course, this lion isn't safe. But he is good. What that means is for all those who repent and believe, all those who come to him for mercy and grace, Jesus is far greater than just safe. Jesus uses his great power to defend us. He uses his great power to transform us. He uses his great power to crush our sin once and for all. He uses his great power to crush our sin living in our hearts still now. Is this great lion safe? No. This great lion is good. He will free us from our sin. He will free us from our oppression, not just outside of us, but even inside of us. The reason we are safe with Jesus is because he puts our sinful nature to death and raises uh, raises us up with him already now to a new life. In this way, we are safe with the one who is so good. And so David praises God, moving on from speaking and declaring his greatness to just gushing and singing about his goodness that he's experienced every day of his life, even when he didn't feel it, even when he didn't see what God was doing. He knows that God is good. And again, brothers and sisters, David puts us to shame here, doesn't he? Because he saw God's goodness a little bit. But how much have you seen it? How much have I seen God's goodness? We have seen it so much more clearly than David got to in his life. We have seen God's perfect greatness and his perfect goodness in Jesus Christ. Because it's on the cross that we see how much our God, how good our God is, that he has a perfect hatred for anything that's not good. That our God despises sin and evil and wickedness and oppression. Our God hates the injustice happening to us and around us and inside of us. And our God will not stop until every sin is put to an end. Every sin is paid for in full. That's how good your God is and mine. He will not let one sin keep on going. He won't let one transgression go unpunished. He isn't safe He's the one that sin and unrepentant sinners should fear immensely. But our God is also so good in that He's so kind. He's so compassionate, so gracious. He will gladly pay this immense debt for us. Christ is so good that He came to pay for each one and every one of my sins on the cross. He bore the weight of it all. And so now we are seen as sinners no longer. Because our Savior is so good that he's transformed us from those who should run from him in terror to those who can only run to him in praise. And so when we look at the cross, we see the clearest picture of God's greatness and his boundless goodness. And so like David, we can go to this great and good God with nothing. Nothing but sin and shame and remaining weakness. 
And there at the cross, we can turn them into songs of praise, not because of who we are, but because of who he is. As one beautiful hymn says, I will give to you my burden as you give to me your strength. Come and fill me with your spirit as I sing to you this praise. You deserve the greater glory. Overcome, I lift my voice. To the king in need of nothing, empty-handed, I rejoice. And when we go to this God each day again with empty hands, simply with praise, what we'll find like David is that he is truly great and truly good. So like David, we should sing out with praise and rejoicing. And again, David doesn't just say that he'll do this occasionally. Remember the first few verses. David doesn't just say he'll meditate on God's uh, goodness and grace from time to time, just on Sunday morning, maybe Sunday afternoon too. No, what David says in verse 2 is, Every day, Lord, I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. David has learned throughout his life and he trusts that God is good. And who knows what tomorrow will bring? We have no idea. David had no idea. But he knew that tomorrow, what he would be doing is bringing praise to his God. Praising him that he is still great and still good. And so today and tomorrow and throughout 2023 and beyond, we can do the same. We can say, I will praise him every day. And not just us by ourselves. But all God's saints praise him together. That's what David says in verse 10. All your saints shall bless you. What a miraculous truth that you and me and David, we can sing these words together. We can go to our God and say, we're going to sing to you. We're going to praise you as sinners. That's not what he says. He says, as saints, we'll bless your name. We'll praise the Holy One of Israel, our Holy God. And we'll praise him as saints, as holy ones ourselves, because of the salvation Christ has purchased for us once and for all. And that's you and me and David. We praise God, the one who makes us holy. We praise him because he's great, and we praise him because he's good. And finally, we praise him because he is kind. In verses 11 to 13, David starts talking about his great king. Remember, David himself was a great king. But he starts talking about his king. He starts talking about uh, the one who has a far greater kingdom than he does. Great David's kingdom was pretty massive at, his, at the time. But he praises in verse 12 God's kingdom that's far greater. It has greater glory and splendor and longevity than his. In, in fact, in verse 12 he says God's kingdom, unlike his, will be everlasting. And again, this elevates our God and magnifies him, praising him for this kingdom that he has, that he's building for himself. But as it elevates God, it sort of seems to push him further away, doesn't it? Just think for a second about how we, us common people, how we relate to a king. Kings seem really far off. They seem really distant, don't they? And this king, this is the king of all kings. This is David's great king. It seems that God is so far off. He's twice removed. But no, in verse 13, David says that this great king, his great king, is a king who is kind. Then he goes on to explain that further in verse 14. He says that this king, this great king, his great king, upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. He lifts all who are falling, raises up those who are bowed down. 
What wonderful, what awesome news for us. Heading into 2023, do you think that you might be someone who is falling? Someone who is bowed down? Someone who can't seem to get their footing physically or emotionally or spiritually or don't know how this next year is going to go? Well, can you imagine a king coming to serve you? Coming to wait on you? Coming to help you? Can you imagine a king, an earthly king, going around, spending all of his time in a soup kitchen, spending all of his time helping regular citizens get on their feet, trying to rebuild broken families, trying to counsel people who need them. This would be unheard of for any earthly king, let alone the greatest earthly king. Well, our heavenly king, David says, this immense and truly awe-inspiring king, he is willing. This king stoops down to draw so near to the falling. To those who are falling, he upholds. Those who are bowed down, he raises up. And this is what David experienced in a personal way throughout his life. God coming down and answering his prayers and saving him from distress and trouble and persecution again and again. But again, we know this in a much greater way. Because in the fullness of time, our great King Jesus Christ would get off his throne in heaven. He would lay his heavenly robe aside, put down his iron scepter. He would get off his throne and come down to earth. We celebrated this just last week. Our king would empty himself of his glory and take on the nature of a servant. He would humble himself, taking on human nature, and would humble himself to the lowest of the low of humanity. He would be like the scum of the earth. He would lower himself even to the point of death, the death of a criminal, a shameful death on a cross. There is no greatness like the greatness of this king. There's no goodness like the goodness of this king. And no kindness like the kindness of this king who would give up everything for sinners like you, for a sinner like me. Our God and King who is truly willing to stoop down and catch you and me when we were falling. And so as David says in verse 15, this God is a God who gives generously with an open hand. And in verse 18, David praises God for being near to all those who call on him in truth. That God means God is near to us. You have to realize this. God is near to us right now as we call on him in truth. What, a, what an amazing promise. One minister put it this way. How would the rest of our worship service look like? How would the beginning of our worship service have looked like? If Jesus Christ was in the building this afternoon, how would you have sung? How would you have prayed? How would you have listened to the sermon? How would you praise God today if you could see Jesus with his nail-scarred hands his marks reminding us of his greatness, of his goodness, of his kindness for you. If he was sitting up here in the front row, I think all we would long to do is praise, praise as hard as we could. But when we call to this great, good, and kind God in truth, he tells us he is near. He's not far off. And he's near defending us, David says in verse 20. This great king is working He's working on destroying the wicked and preserving those who love him. This God is near right now. 
This is our great God and King. And so David's response is clear. And his advice to us, his command to us is clear. It comes up in the first verse of Psalm 145, in the last verse, in the middle verses, everywhere in between. What David wants us to do right now is to stop and to praise the Lord. Praise God's awesome name. What else do we have to do? And this is only fitting. It's only natural. God calls us to make our joy and our love for him complete, our amazement complete, not by bottling it up and thinking on it occasionally, but by meditating on it and by expressing it. When you experience something or someone great and good and kind, someone truly awesome, then he tells us we should do what we were created to do and simply burst out in praise. That's what we're called to do today and each day again. We're called in 2023 to get to know God better, to get to know Christ better. And as we do that, naturally what should result is we will praise him more and more, not just internally, but externally as well. And so David calls us to share our praise with others, doesn't he? That's a theme throughout the psalm. You can see, for example, in verse 4 already. David says, One generation shall commend your works to another. If you've been blessed in your life, and I hope that you have, if you've been blessed to come to know a little bit about this God's greatness, his goodness, his kindness, through his word or through your experiences or experiences that you've heard of from others. Well, don't keep that to yourself. Why would you? Share it. David calls us to share it with the next generations, those younger than us, maybe kids or grandkids or uh, others in church, but share it around with an open hand. Share it around generously. Don't make your kids, your grandkids, or the, the youth in the church start from scratch trying to learn about this God. But share what God has taught to you about who he is and what he's like. That's what David is doing for us. Let's do it for others as well. And uh, as you might know, uh, when you're coming to understand something for yourself, one of the greatest ways for you to grow in it and you to learn how to understand it better is for you to try to teach someone else. Isn't that true? And you really have to get your mind wrapped around it. So what you'll find as you try and teach others what you've learned about God, His greatness, His goodness, His kindness, is you'll start to get it better too. You'll be as blessed as they will be. Secondly, we see not just to praise God to others, but just try to praise God to yourself as well. Spend time in the Word and spend time considering God's creation and just yourself praising God for how awesome He is. I don't know about you guys, but sometimes, especially in British Columbia, uh, I'll do that a lot. Uh, I'll praise God to myself, and my family makes a lot of fun of me for it. That's fair. I probably deserve it. But I'll go on each day again, uh, just always commenting on the beauty of the sunrise and of the sunset. And as I'm driving, I comment on every mountain we pass. And I'm just praising all of these things. But I'm not praising the mountain, of course. I'm not praising the sun. I'm praising the God who made them. And my family will make a lot more fun of me when they realize I don't just do this when they're there. I do it when I'm driving by myself, sometimes out loud. What a sunrise, what a mountain. Look at the way the the sun is reflecting. What a God made these things. Praise God to others, but praise God just to yourself. As you drive down the highway, as you see Mount Baker, see the sunset, praise the God who made these things. 
And finally, don't just share your praise with others. Don't just share the praise with yourself, but share your praise with God. This is a big one and one that we neglect a lot, I think. But if you look through this psalm, you'll see there's a lot of first persons. David's talking about himself. He's using the third person. He's talking about others, but he also uses the second person. He's directing this praise straight to God. Tell God about his goodness. Tell God what you think about his goodness and his kindness. God does this to us. God directs his word to us. He tells us all about his love for us. And he shows us how deeply he loves us, how much he cares for us, how much he forgives us and delights in us and longs to spend eternity with us. He shows us this so clearly in his word and in Christ. Now, if you're responding to that message for you, you go to him. You go and tell God what you think about that. Complete your joy and wonder in the Lord by doing what C.S. Lewis discovered is the most natural thing to do. If you're amazed that God loves you, you go to God and tell him you love him too. Tell God that you're amazed by him. Tell God that you know you can't and you don't even want to live without him. Don't fall for the lie that C.S. Lewis believed that praise is a bad thing, that it's unnatural, and that God only really wants it if he's a narcissist. Praise is good and natural. You can see that in any good marriage, can't you? A good husband is one who praises his wife, expresses that he's amazed by her, doesn't just keep it in his head. No, he shares it, not just with others, with her. Praise is good and natural. And so a God who's so great and so kind, so wonderful, when we catch a glimpse of how awesome he is, the only right thing to do is to fall down in worship, telling others about him, telling ourselves, but telling him, praising him with everything we have, longing to know him and to delight in him and expressing that delight even right to him with praise. Because praise is a gift that God has given to us. And our joy can only be complete, as C.S. Lewis came to realize, it's only complete when we, we actually express these feelings, when we express our wonder, when we express our amazement at God's greatness and goodness and kindness. And so this upcoming year in 2023, let's reflect on this text and let's reflect on this gift that David reveals to us, this gift of praising the Lord. Amen.